All right. I think it's going now. Um, <laughs> I was thinking we could start off. That There's a quote I wanted to start off with because I, I feel like it's a good place to start. Um, and uh, it's where he, he's talking about s- scripture and the, the role it's kind of played in the formation of doctrine. So what he says here is, really on the whole, Christians rarely pay particularly close attention to what the Bible actually says. For the simple reason that the texts defy synthesis and a canon of exact doctrines. And yet most Christians rely on doctrinal canons. Theologians are the, often the most cavalier in their treatment of text, chiefly because their first loyalty is usually to the grand systems of belief they have devised or adopted. But the Bible is not a system. A very great deal of theological tradition consists, therefore, in explaining away those aspects of Scripture that contradict the finely wrought structure of this or that orthodoxy. Um, of course, and of course, David Bentley Hart's coming from his own system as well. But um, that that seemed to me to really resonate in terms of like what the book's about is trying to, um, I don't know, come in and and treat this the Bible from a from a kind of different perspective um, coming outside of uh, some of this traditional, um, you know, Western Christianity point of view on this subject. Um, I mean, what, what was your kind of take on the, on the book, uh, Sherry, in terms of uh, how it affected you and, and, you know, what you thought about, thought about it coming in? Cause I know that was one thing we talked about is kind of our own trepidations uh, about reading the book in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, like I said to you before, um, I was I was reading it probably with a presupposition that it was heresy when I started it. I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna wade through it, and, you know, it's gonna and it's, something's gonna jump out at me and say, boo, and then I'm just gonna run away, right? Because it's not not the thing I want to see, and um, and I also didn't want to confirm like my own what do we call it confirmation bias right i didn't want to i didn't want to come in and 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 think okay this is really what i want to hear so i'm so happy that i'm hearing it you know like that i didn't read it like that i read it more with a very skeptical um spirit and and you know i i highlighted almost the whole book like it's just ridiculous and and every time I'd highlight something, I would give it a second thought. And I'd think, no, no, that's holding up. You know, that's holding up too. And, and, um, and I would try to, you know, break down the argument sometimes. And I just, there was one part I don't actually remember anymore um, that I, and I, I didn't have time to prepare for this. So um, there was one, one spot that I thought was maybe a little muddy. Okay. Um, and I can, I can find it later and, and, and let you know about it. Um, I don't think that it was theologically muddy. I just thought that maybe it was more of a, um, how do I put it? Um, like an opinion and not necessarily, you know, it, it, it could, it's an either or thing. Like, well, maybe it's that, but, but it could be, it still could be this. But I don't yeah. actually remember at the moment what it was about. So I'll have to read, I'll have to read that over and, and find it. But otherwise, it's, uh, it, to me, it feels really solid. Yeah. And, um, 
That's all I can say. I came in with the same thing. I was I was kind of um, certain sense of fear that okay, <clears throat> that like you said that it was there was something heretical at the basis of this, mm-hmm. and I was worried about maybe dislodging something in my own belief system with because because I wanted to to accept this, you know, because this is it's a weird kind of thing that's lodged into our Christianity. Um, it's not, it's not something that's really talked about very much. Um, and when it is explicitly talked about, it is very kind of odd and strange. Um, but it's the, the kind of implicit fear of hell is really baked into, especially American evangelicalism. And sometimes, you know, really explicitly with something like, uh, what, what was that thing they did a while back? Uh, heaven's gates, hell's, hell's flames. Remember that? It was like a, um, it was like a play or something that would, would, that was put on like a lot of evangelical churches did it. And it was kind of like to emphasize, uh, you know, you got to make your decision right now, whether where you're going to go when you die and that sort of thing. Watch the play, do the altar call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. So anybody that I, that grew up in that environment, I think, you know, feels mm-hmm. like this is kind of like a cornerstone of, of reality, um, and where we're headed. And, I don't know, for whatever reason, I felt like not having the, and one thing to be clear, I think too, about his, his point of view is not that hell doesn't exist, but that it um, isn't forever. Right. And that, um, well, you know what, honestly, um, I, I never even knew that that was a possibility that, that you (laughs) burn in hell forever. I honestly, I never knew that. Like I'm 57. (laughs) And uh, and it's like, oh, this is like, you know. Have I ever? Have I ever told you, Sherry, that that was a big part of my whole like intellectual deconstruction was discovering annihilationism. Um, And then when I studied that topic really in depth, because I saw this debate with Chris Date and this guy, I forget. And I watched his like two hour debate. And I remember thinking at the end, like, wait a minute, the one guy who made all these really strong exegetical points, you know, cause I came out of this really Bible, Bible teaching, Bible first, high view of scripture tradition, uh, was doing all the solid exegesis. And, and I was like, but that's not, so he was the one who clearly made the best points and seemed like that's what the Bible teaches, but that's not the right view. And so then I went, very similar to that, you know, to you where, and I, just to your point, I don't think most people know the history or, or like what is considered an orthodox view of, of hell. Like, it's just stuff that people don't know. We just take it, um, you know, because really like eternal torment, the idea of this eternal torturing idea of hell is very much the water we swim in, at least in American Christianity and um and even within even if you get into adherence of eternal conscious torment who hold to the traditional western view that no one really no no modern scholar of eternal conscious torment or very few hold to like the idea that's in most of the lay people it's just amazing it really is yeah i mean is, I, I i stumbled on it just by reading George McDonald's unspoken sermons right yeah you know, like, what is he talking about here? 
you know, like, is he actually saying what I think he's saying? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and to yeah. your point, Michael, I mean, hell is a, a Christian universalist believes in hell. Like that's a common misconception is people are like, well, hell's real. Well, Christian universalists believe in hell. So, yeah. 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 Well, and it's interesting too that, that, that at least the English word hell or what we, what we have is, a, it doesn't exist in the Bible. That's, yeah. that's something that he goes through, you know, it's just not a, a thing. You, there, there's, there's certain, you know, allusions to judgment for sure, but there isn't like a, and there's many kind of parables, you know, especially that Jesus tells that kind of allude to what this judgment's like, but there's nothing like of this, this certain idea that we have in in the Bible itself of, you know, I guess, I mean, I guess you do have in, in Revelation, you know, the lake of fire imagery, but um, which, which is where a lot of this comes from as well. But I, I was just thinking, I meant to do this before we got on the call, but um, what is, it's not really, is it written into any of the creeds? No, I don't know. Not the early creeds. There are, um, like, I, I don't know. The only, I know that it's in the Westminster Confession. I'm not sure of like, so Paul's, which isn't, which is the British kind of reformed tradition. I don't know if it's within the Dutch Calvinist strain specifically, because even in my first conversation of hell, when I was bringing this up, talking about my journey, Paul was quizzical and just like, so, I mean, I don't know. He, and he knows that really well. Like he quotes from it sometimes, yeah. you know, during what, 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 about, the apost- what about the apostolic creed and the, and the, and the creed? I mean, the closest you get is something like a, a reference to judgment, to judge the living and the dead is sure. what I can think of. But that's... Um, that's not a problem. Yeah, I mean, there, that's... There's no hell stuff. The reason I know this is because, like, they're in my... Um, so that one of the churches that I went to after I... Because I, I essentially was just... What you're handed as an American Christian is eternal conscious torment. And then when I became an annihilationist, I went to a church where I let the pastor know this and, um, and, and it only became an issue because in their statement of faith, this is kind of, this is my whole first conversation with Paul. It, there was a specific point. They had 13 points that you needed to affirm for membership because I wanted to become a member. And one of them was about specifically about eternal conscious torment. And all these words matter because because you can be an annihilationist and you believe in eternality. You believe in eternal punishment. This is something else people don't know. An annihilationist believes in eternal punishment. It's just death, which mm-hmm. is a punishment that lasts forever. Mm-hmm. You know, but the eternal punishing is a different. So I got into all of this because, I mean, I've looked into these things because they based their statement of faith off of Westminster Confession. And so it, it's within the Westminster Confession, mm-hmm. it's specifically eternal conscious torment. But earlier than that, um, I don't think so. And I don't, I don't know Catholic dogma enough to know. But. Well, the Catholic, I, I don't either, but they do have purgatory, which is like, you know, kind of a, a nice little um, compromise or something to that. But I think they're universalists after Vatican II. I, I think all think Catholics so. are. I, I mean, from a little bit that I've interacted with people on the discord that are catholic 
I'm not getting the vibe that they're a universalist, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure either, so. I haven't, I haven't just come out and asked, you know, like someone like Carlos, because he's just a wealth of knowledge, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what uh, okay, I'm curious, what convinced you, so how long were you an annihilationist for? Um, that was probably, that's when, uh, what a year would that have been? It was probably like 2010, no, 2011 maybe or something like that. So I was probably an annihilationist until I, I looked into it for probably, it didn't take me long to become an annihilationist. I mean, just because I came out of such an exegetic, I think annihilation from what I can see now, when I look at scripture is like exegetically the, I think it's the most easily illustrated through scriptural passages uh-huh. um, when you do word studies and things. And so I was probably an annihilationist for about three years, but then really the truth is um, I slowly transitioned from that when I, and I'm part of that's my whole evolution, understanding the Bible and how you approach it and how you understand knowledge. And, I went to a Rethinking Hell conference, which is actually where I met Preston Sprinkle in the flesh. And I went to this breakout session because they're because they are an evangelical group just educating about annihilation, essentially, and, and the doctrine of hell. And so I went to their actual physical conference in Dallas. I have family in Dallas. And, and there was this breakout session with this uh, philosopher who's actually he's a it was awesome. It was an awesome, it was such a cool conference. It was just like a bunch of nerds and it was great. But, um, there was this philosopher who did a breakout session. I don't even remember the title of it. I should go back through all that. Cause it was awesome. But he said, he told me, and I believe this is true. He said, if you're, if you are by nature, um, like a, a Bible, a Bible for person or a historian, and you grew up in the West, you'll be an, an adherent of eternal conscious torment. Cause that's just what you get with being uh and he said if you are more of an exegetical person and you really look at it and go through the arguments and really evaluate them and look at them you'll be an annihilationist and he said if you're a philosopher by nature he's like you'll be a universalist (laughs) because it's just it's the most it's the most cogent and i think this is kind of david bentley Hart's point it's the most logically consistent cogent best story Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not like there aren't texts that point to it. I just don't think like if you're just taking it in like a very systematic formula, exegesis only logic first way, annihilation is about the clearest to me. I always said for me, the breakdown is about 80% of the, of the applicable passages in hell, I think lean strongly annihilationist. About 19.9 are universalist. And there's essentially none <laughs> that are for eternal conscious torment. Maybe one in Revelation. Revelation twenty eleven, I believe. But so, so, I mean, what do you what do you hold till now? Are you still kind of like up in the air in terms of? No, your- I, no, I'm a universalist, and and that's primarily just because um, I always used to say hopeful universalist until I heard in this book when David Bentley Hart was just like, just say it. Just yeah. say you're a full-on universalist. So I was like, all right. Because to me, it's I, I've just gotten to the place where I'm not, I'm no longer a, I'm no longer kind of a rational foundationalist. And so I don't think you can know. And so like, 
I, I trust my hope and my intuition just as much as I do my biblical exegesis. And so I'm just like, well, you know, that, that, that's actually what has kind of, so like my, my journey with God has, has always been, um, Someone, someone will tell me in the church, let's say, theologically, it's, it's, it's this, this, and this, concerning whatever, it doesn't matter. They have, a, they have their theological system to explain it, you know, and I go, okay, and then I read my Bible, and I go, but what about that, right? And so it's kind of, it, it's like when, when we first moved from Switzerland to Canada, I had to teach my two old, older children to read and write in English. They spoke English, but they didn't read and write in English. Mm-hmm. And, and so I had to teach that to them. And all I heard myself saying all the time was, except for when, or except, right? Because it's just like this language full of exceptions. Like, this is the rule, but you break it here and here and here and here, right? So that's what I was seeing. I, I'm reading my Bible, I'm hearing this stuff, and then I'm, and then I'm, I'm confronted with exceptions, right? And so I come to the conclusion that these people don't know what they're talking about. These people that are telling me, they don't know what they're talking about. They're finding a nice, easy solution that they can give me an answer to, but they really don't know. Like they don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I I have this mantra, nothing is as it seems. Mm. That's, you know, when it comes to God, right. You think it's this, but then there's a verse that says, nope, that's not it. Right. And so, and so what you have to do, or what I did, was embrace the ambiguity of it. Mm. Just say yes to that, okay? So it's like, um, obviously, and then, and then I come across, you know, Paul saying, one day we shall know as we are known. And, and I go, yep, there it is. There it is. We don't know, okay? <laughs> and, and nobody can tell me that they do know. And... Um, that's a trippy know as we are known the one being known is relational yes it's the thing that everybody wants it's the it's the i see you in avatar right in the movie they look at each other and say i see you it's that's knowing as you are known you know and i mean george mcdonald does this great sermon on the stone on the white stone that god name on and puts it on your forehead right you should share that with me because what or tell me which one it is because i've been thinking about that a lot yeah and that's who you are and you don't know who you are and god knows who you are and he gives you the stone and then you say yes to it because you know as you are known okay so you understand who you are for the first time and anyway why is it saying all that um Oh yeah, one of the one of the things I really had trouble with in Revelation was, the, you know, the the scene, right, where it's like, well, Lord, we were doing all these things for you, and He says, depart from me, right, and then these other people are just like, you know, slipping slipping by, you know, um, not like getting out there and doing the Christian thing. They're not trying to rack up points or anything, and He's like, come on in, you know, I love you, right? You're you're blessed. And, and, and I said, okay, this is just like, <laughs> why is this in here? And to me, the only reason it's in there is, is to say, you don't know shit, right? That's what it's telling me. I don't, you don't know and don't <laughs> pretend you know, you know, because you really don't know. Because obviously you're going to get up there and it's not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to be what you expected. 
you might be one of those people that says, get, you know, depart from me, right? But what do you do with those people? Mm. Those people were working for the Lord. They were doing great things. They were feeding the poor. They were, what do you do with them? What is it that they are missing? What is it that they don't have that they can't enter into rest with the others? Mm. Right? And so when I started reading McDonald and, and David Bentley Hart and the whole idea of burning off the dead wood and getting rid of your axioms, you know, and, and, and your presuppositions and your expectations and all these things. Um, I always have a visual of things. And so it's like everybody sees things like this and God's like, no, you need to see them upside down. They're, they're all the way the other way right? And so off you go. And when you do, then, you know, let's, let's, let's party, right? Let's have a great coming together because I mean, how could you mingle those two groups of people together? How could you um, bring a, a group of people together who are just like in awe and accepting and embracing and are okay with the way it is. And then you have this other group of people going, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not what my theology, you know, and according to Bentley Hart, our personhood is not, is not going to be removed from us. Our presuppositions, our axioms, right? That the things that we, we carry with us. So on the basis of all that, that is what is speaking to me when I'm reading this book and when I'm reading um, George MacDonald, because to me, universal reconciliation is the only place where all of this, uh -oh. you losing us? Well, you cut out for a while, at least for me. Oh, it's uh, the only place, it's the only place where, where the story of, you know, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and enter into my rest where that story makes sense yeah I, I i agree i mean i read the book i probably three or four times um and then also that youtube video that i sent to you which is kind of a, a condensed version of it it's you know the paper he wrote that uh, that kind of got the whole ball rolling in this direction which he kind of built on in the book and I I was reading specifically to find things that were, you know, logical flaws or things that I could could kind of hang sink my teeth into as kind of a a place to uh, to go against it. And I just I really I couldn't find it. Um, and I, I I've even looked online to see you know what sort of critiques there are of of the the book that would be interesting and they're not interesting. It, it was funny like there would be people would would accuse him of being emotionally committed, you know, to, to this point of view. And then, you know, they would attack him for emotional reasons of their own. It was, I don't know. I just, I didn't find anything um, really compelling in terms of a critique. And one of the big things is just his, his exegesis of, of the new Testament. I mean, he obviously knows the new Testament very well. And that quote, I quote at the beginning about you know, we don't really, especially in the Western Christian tradition, we don't really read the Bible to tell it, see what it says. We, we, we read it to kind of reaffirm 
mm-hmm. things that we already believe. We don't, we don't come to it to be shaped by it. We come to it to be like, okay, that fits into my system. Um, and, and so, I mean, a lot of those texts, I mean, it, it's not like a few texts. There's a lot of different texts that say, you know, that use the word all in reference to salvation. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, especially in the book of Ephesians, I've always found it interesting that this idea of redemption isn't limited to humanity. It's the whole cosmos, right? Yeah, That's right. even, even in John three sixteen when it says God so loved the world, it's the cosmos. It's the whole of created order that is, is in some sense right now subjugated and that will also be in the future redeemed. Yeah. Um, and, and he makes some really great points in the book about how you can't, you can't throw away some bit of it and still get the same story. It's just, I mean, I mean, he does it a number of different ways. There's like three or four different arguments in the book. There's the scriptural argument. There's, um, you know, kind of the philosophical idea of what good is. There's even the idea of what is a person. That was the, the part of it that I found most really personally affecting was what is a person. And, and we have in the West, this idea of, that you can be an individual apart from everything else, everybody else, that that's a a status that you can have. And he makes the point in the book that that's, that's actually not the case. Like your individuality is nothing but a sum of all your relationships to everybody else, you know, and, and to take those away or to modify them in some capacity by, you know, let's say like, how could I ever be, you know, a father who's in heaven, and have my son be in hell and, and have like, be okay with that. Like what, I mean, would God, you know, wipe away the memories? Would God, you know, like there's just not a a very sensible way of, of interpreting that data. Um, that, that, so, sorry, I was go ahead. wondering, cause I have in, I haven't read the book. And so I'm curious just to, pick your brain about it because you've obviously read it four times sherry's read it once um so i have because the most the loudest voice in my head that's been formed my spiritual element is is this is a calvinist yeah so which david bentley hard definitely you know says strong things about in the book um but as you're talking so i mean i've listened to a lot of sermons about biblical texts relating to all from a Calvinist frame. And, and I mean, there are things that are like, um, it, and this is true, but like in English, all doesn't always mean all, you know? So there are, that you can say that depending on the context, you know, you can say, uh, um, you know, like they all went to the mall or something. And you maybe don't mean every single person Right. You're maybe just referring to something else. So I don't know if David Bentley Hart addresses things like that. Or one of the other questions I had in my mind is that even like John 3.16, which is a great annihilationist passage because it's for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there's a couple of things. The word perish is in Greek is a polemi, which means to be destroyed, to cease to be essentially. So does David Bentley Hart... So those two things, does he address the all question, but then also does he talk about why, why is the Bible written in such a way 
Because like if you just read seemingly for me on its face, John 3.16, it seems like some people perish. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Um, but he does say that, um, so what I think one of the examples that, that clearly rings out to me is the one um, where it says that, I think it's in Romans where it says, it's in the same sentence that he says, so that likewise, because all died through Adam, all shall be saved in Christ. So yeah. that's a case where you would have to change the meaning of all mid-sentence to mean you know to to be from everybody meaning all humanity to keep it in like original sin yeah. total depravity and then salvation right. yeah. that's 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 one where like to me that really hammered home like because i i you know that's that's a lot of the critiques i've read online as well of his work is that hey he's not taking into account you know all can mean different things but that's that's one where like okay you'd have to make a pretty strong argument to say that what are your reasons for this pivot for it suddenly having a change of meaning mid sentence hey, that's that's first corinthians fifteen twenty two. for just as in adam all die so also in the anointed christ all will be given life and then there's there's a he he does a, a whole bunch of them and he's really facetious because <laughs> he goes well if anybody needs a verse there's this one and this one or this one and of course that one and you know <laughs> Yeah, but, but it, um, you get all I mean, sorts of weird. I mean, the other thing that would makes it so compelling to me is there's just so many weird things you would have to like. He makes the point that he doesn't he doesn't think any of the people that claim to believe this actually do. That maybe maybe they will in the in in the torment. You mean who believe yeah, in the torment? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he says. I agree with that. I mean, and and I, it's very very hard to argue with that when you look at it. Just I mean, on face value, like if you really believe that, like how could you spend any any part of your life not trying to rescue people from that? Right. Well, that's that, and that's a good. That's a really great example of the huge deficit of an overemphasis on propositional belief is like you say you believe in this hell. You don't act like it. Yeah. Now I know from the Calvinist perspective, you can, you can get yourself off the hook for trying to go around saving everybody by saying, well, God decides anyway. So I don't have any, I don't get to, my actions don't play a role, which, which is kind of, I don't know. I don't, I I don't really don't like that. Uh, They would say it's a caricature of Calvinism too. Yeah. It It is, but it isn't because that's ultimately, that ultimately leads to that, kind of behavior of being indifferent in a sense because it's outside of your hands you know like it's not well you know i i there's a good side and a bad side to it because like you know even you know paul he'll 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 lean on his calvinism when he when he when he talks about like why he doesn't have to be so uh he doesn't have to convince you right right so that it allows him to be more open to other people and be like it's not my job to i don't have to win this argument to you know win my um, evangelical, you know, I saved you points. Um, it's, it's God that does it. So it's, so there's, there's a positive element there, but there is, there's a negative side as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other thing is he made like, okay, so let's say, um, you know, there's, there's some age of consent where 
if you you reach this age and you you die before afterwards, like you uh, you go to heaven or hell versus you know if you he says like why how could you ever have kids well, <laughs> if there's a chance that, that, that they like, might not go to to heaven like if, like yeah, they, and, like it's and, almost and, irresponsible. <laughs> Yes. And, and, and when I remember that conversation that Luke and I had there a while ago, I was saying that everything becomes, you know, then they start making up rules like up to the age of whatever, you know, well, where's well and, and you'd, you'd have to be pro-abortion because you'd have to like that. You're guaranteeing at least that they go to heaven. How dare right, you? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I don't like is, is the arbitrary rulemaking, you know, because it's like, really? Like you're going to go there? Like you're, you're just going to make up some age limit yeah. to who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Well, you have to when salvation, because, okay. So like we began this whole discussion talking about like, and you guys, you know, said you were nervous reading it because of the seriousness of hell and, and that it might be heretical or might lead you down paths of wrong belief but what I was hearing while you were saying that is, is embedded underneath that is, is the fear that like, if I believe wrong things, I go to hell. But that is all caged within a framework of age of consent is the same thing. Yeah. Because this person has to be a certain age where they can rationally comprehend these things and believe the right stuff. And then that is what saves. I would, I mean, that's not what, that's not what salvation is, <laughs> you know? Um, that's, that's basically my big project is to argue against that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's, I think one of, and, and I have heard this through podcasts that the strongest, the strongest case for universalism, I mean, you're never gonna, someone who's a, who's a biblical foundationalist and who's really keen on proof texting, and who's fitting everything within systematic categories, you're never going to convince them through exegesis anyhow. Um, And so I think the, the philosophical consistency of the whole thing as a narrative and, and as a story and as a, and as a system that, because that's what I've heard through podcasts is that's what he says is that universalism is the, is the only thing that like, fits together completely without inconsistencies yeah and i I, one of the things i that's that to me comes out of it too is i i feel like if you believe in heaven and hell in this kind of story you you believe in winners and losers and you always are going to be motivated to be the winner even if you know that being a winner in this new, um, you know, domain has some different, you know, characteristics, right? Because, you know, Jesus said that the, the greatest shall be the servant of all. So like now I, I can reinterpret my life so that I'm the servant and anybody I, I see not being a servant, I can now say they're, they're the ones going to hell. It's like you, you start to frame the world in all these weird ways of dichotomies as, as long as you believe in winners and losers. But if you, actually see that everybody is is important to the divine plan that is of you know inestimable valuable person then then you can you can actually act in the way that jesus prescribes which is to to liberally sow your life into every (laughs) opportunity because it's all 
it's all part of what you'll be united to in the end. Like it's, it's, um, well, it's, you, you become, you become, at least for me, reading, reading this and understanding it the way I think I'm, you know, the, the way I think it's supposed to be understood is that you are part of a brotherhood, that you are, that this is a family, that this is, that we are all connected, right? And I mean, I always, you know, I always thought that what God started in, in the garden was the project. The project was to be a family, right? To be together with him forever. And, and um, um, the idea of being, you know, the God man or, or, you know, being absorbed in, you know, the, hum the human and the divine becoming becoming um, melded together, you know, to enjoy communion with each other. Um, that That's always been um, my thought on it. That's It's always been the end game for me. Like, that's how I've thought of it. And, you know, I was listening one time, this is just an anecdotal thing, but I was listening to a CBC radio show about some Muslim man in India, and, and he was translating the Quran because the Quran is written in Arabic and you have they have to read it in Arabic I believe right mm -hmm. or they can't read it in their own languages and so some people have um, you know their language you know how when you learn when you, when you grow up with a mother tongue you're unable to say certain sounds because of your mother tongue um, and that's where we get accents so Indian people who are Muslim have a difficult time reading the Arabic properly. Mm. And if to them, they feel like they are dishonoring God by not reading it right. Okay. So I guess there's some work, you know, suffixes or whatever things in there that they can't, they can't say properly. And so this old man took it upon himself to translate the Quran into, um, a form uh, into you know Arabic, but he he's he's developed some kind of system of, of writing out the words so that an Indian person could read them properly. Okay. And this whole interview, he was speaking in his in his own language. He didn't speak any English. This old guy, and he was just a simple man, you know. And he started to weep, and he said that that the only reason that he had done it. It was for the glory of God. And I started to weep, okay, when I heard that. And I thought, man, you know, heaven is not going to be, like, the landscape is not going to be what we think it is, you know. And it makes, it makes me feel weepy just saying it. Because, and then, and then, and then Jeff reads his, his little excerpt from C.S. Lewis's um, Last Battle, right? And I'm like, oh, there's the guy, right? That was him. In that excerpt, the old man in India translating the Quran so to, for the glory of God, right? So that people could read it right and glorify him. Right. Well, and here's... Um, <laughs> and I don't so, want to sound like super like kumbaya here, okay? Like, I hope it's not coming across like that. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. What, what I was going to just add to that is I don't think... And at least for me, and I mean, maybe you could tell me if I'm deluded, but I don't think you need to make a choice between believing right things and believing true things and um, and then also being in Christ. Because I think you can have 
the good Muslim, the good Buddhist, the good translator of the Quran, Emeth in the last battle. You can have all that be in Christ, but it doesn't mean, I, I think one of the other kind of built in water we swim in assumptions that we have is like, all of the all of the intellectual mental frameworks and categories have to be right. They have to be precise and figured out before you die. Because because that's what it's all based on again, right? If we study hell and it's the wrong thing and it's heretical, we might go to hell. It's all about having all the ideas figured out in the, on this side of death. And I don't what think do what's interesting, huh? What does that say though about about God? You know, like about well, but the thing is, is I don't even think that that's taught. That's not even taught biblically. I don't think. Like, t- I, what I would challenge someone is like, prove that to me scripturally. I don't think you can. And like, even you know, I'll, I'll someone like Esther who, and she said this publicly. Who you know, I have her and I probably view things a lot of stuff differently. We're pretty close in a lot of ways too. But she. But Esther has said this, that she doesn't believe that, um, like she, I think Esther is open to at least, or believes in like um, post-death conversion. And so like, we just, we don't have, we don't know how all that works, you know? And so I, I, as a Christian universalist, do I believe ever, do I believe in the final analysis at the end? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Absolutely. I believe that absolutely. Do I think that everyone who dies here that isn't acknowledging Christ verbally, because this is, and then people will proof text you, like, unless you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, that's, I mean, we can go into the exegesis and talk about what confess means biblically in the Greek. It doesn't mean what you think it means as like a modern category. So, I mean, it's just, I want to put that out there that I don't think being a universalist and because I think people view universalism as wishy-washy. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. And everybody, people think that about me because I downplay propositions all the time. And there's a reason I do. But, but in the end, I believe everyone's going to have the right yeah, propositions. If you're a Calvinist, you could be wishy-washy, right? About, about um, your axioms. You could be, um, what was the second thing you said? Um, I don't know. Uh, something about not following through, like just, you know, doing whatever you want right well i think people think that like it doesn't matter what you do if universal oh, I, know. I mean those things can apply to the other side of the coin though is what i'm saying like it, just because universalism encompasses everyone it's it's just not a free pass right so yeah if you I, are I think it matters more what you do i think so too actually because, I agree. Because, because the reason being that there is no there is no remainder that that gets swept under the rug you can't pass the buck to Jesus through substitutionary atonement. No, yeah, well, and, and also, well, and also, like the, the the every interaction you have with every other person matters because it's it's a part of 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 the divine unity in the end. You can't you can't make the thing like okay, well, this this bad stuff over here happened because they were bad people, and they, and and you get justified in the end because they go to hell. And you're like, well, yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I'm I'm right, they're wrong. There's this kind of yeah you know, playing out in our heads like where we we 
all the hard things that Jesus asks us to do, we, we kind of can provide the world in such a way that we never have to do them with real people. Yeah. Well, and I've actually been examining my own heart and thinking, okay, what is the dead wood here? Okay. Like how can I skip the purifying process, so to speak? Right. Like what do I need to change? Like I'm actually more self-reflective now than I was ever in my life. Right. And to, to be honest, from my own personal, uh, th- there's certain sin issues and things in my life that I, that, and this isn't like this, I'm not universalizing my experience either, but to your point, the, that was the same thing for me. Yeah. As, a, as a Calvinist, there were sin issues in my life that I essentially felt like I could get away with because in the end, it didn't really matter what I did. It only mattered that I was judged righteous in Christ by what he lived and acted out 2000 years ago. It didn't matter like Christ in me now and what I did didn't matter. And I mean, I know they have frames to say like sanctification matters and you'll be living into your justification. I mean, I get it. Calvinist, you don't have to tell me the theology. Like I know it. Um, but, but it's almost more now, it, it's a very Jordan Peterson-esque. I was listening to, um, to Michael, your conversation with Karen recently, which was wonderful, brilliant, highly suggested. But um, the Jordan Peterson thing of like the ripples of, of all, the, the, the fact that your, your actions have this rippling effect that goes out and is interconnected with everything and affects everything is such a, and, and it's not, it's not like a, um, it's kind of a yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a yoke. It's serious. You're taking your cross up the hill, but like, but I think when you do it in, when you realize that it's all connected to the good, so it's good for me, it's good for my family, it's good for my neighbors. When, when it's connected intimately with goodness and beauty all together, but everything matters infinitely, it's not a, it's not a debilitating weight. It's just, it's just sobriety. It's just like, you can't get away with this. No one gets away with anything. Yeah. I feel like the, the various yeah. theological frames, whether it's Calvinism, whatever you call it, it, it there's always a, a math problem you're trying to solve where again, you get assigned to the winner category. You're, you're right. trying to, you're trying to use your intellect to kind of get ahead of the game and predict where it's going manipulating God and like his, like, if I believe the right things, then I'm okay. And then it all becomes, yeah, it essentially all becomes a game, which isn't back to what we were talking about earlier is that God, and this is why the whole, the, the whole (laughs) crucifixion and resurrection really was an inversion of the world. I mean, this is what I think Paul is talking about in the first few chapters of first Corinthians. The wisdom, it's fundamentally opposed to the wisdom of the world. And if you think you have it figured out, God is constantly turning the tables. I mean, and Jesus in all his parables is turning the tables. Like you think you're invited or, or Paul's in the book of Romans. He's saying like, don't, don't hope on Abraham that you're a Jew. You can, you know, he grafted them in. You can be grafted out. Like don't count on your formulas. Yes, exactly. You That's can't, God is not mocked. You reap what you yeah. sow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you do. And in universalism, you do actually reap what you sow. And it's not, and it's not, and this is, and then people, so then I hear like people are going to be going off on works righteousness. 
There is no such thing. It's panentheism. It's Christ in me. It's God in me. There isn't such a thing as doing a good thing apart from Christ. Well, that's why acting as if has any substance, right? That's why it resonates with people because people ultimately know that, like Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him, right? It's, it's embodiment. It's, it, if that's what you believe, then that's what moves out, out of you. That's the thing that you do. That's what, what you talk about. That's how you belief, think. That's belief you as, act as if. This is why Jordan yeah. Peterson matters. That, that's right. that thing is why exactly. I think he's so important. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, anyway, I, I don't want to get into sifting through, you know, what, I mean, we're, we're human, right? So we don't always, it, what's the saying? Um, do what I say, not what I do or whatever, you know, and call it the same problem, you know, <laughs> that's the dichotomy of being loving God and, and being human right? It's like, you just can't, you can't always be what, what you want to be. But yeah, we talked about that one time in the voice chat about intent, you know, and that is the heart, right? That is, it's not the thing that we judge. I think God judges. But, yeah. Well, maybe in this gets into, I mean, I don't want to do it. I'm just, we're kind of just going wherever the spirit moves. So I don't, I mean, we could talk about the book, but I, I've been thinking a lot more about the whole good faith, good faith argument. And I think this is a big, so this is a big piece within this whole Jordan Peterson thing and Joe Rogan and the IDW is everybody talks about free speech, free speech, dialogues, dialogues are what's important without shutting down conversation, these long form dialogues. But then it came up recently that these things have to be, they have to be in good faith. And so what is a good faith argument? What is a good faith dialogue? And I think what you just said, Cherry, remind, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think what you just said reminded me of that, which is like, do what I say, not what I do. And that's kind of a flip on what I think a good faith argument is, is that this reminds me of early on in Paul's conversation. I think he had a conversation with Eric, like math Eric, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, who had the red headphones in his video. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, makes the best memes. <laughs> yeah. He makes great memes. Um, you know, like, the hierarchy Willy Wonka meme is excellent. But um, he, uh, he said in there that a lot, and this is true. I mean, every, everything really fundamentally is built on faith. Dr. Jim said this in a video the other day. So good faith, a good, I, I do agree that free speech is important, but not free speech in and of itself in just the intellect because we're not rational creatures. Mm -hmm. What makes those conversations good is faith. And that's rooted in trust. And that's rooted in holiness. This is why holiness matters. You have a good faith conversation with someone when you trust them. Why do you trust someone? Because they're good. But I think, you know, like when, when it comes to the whole good faith, bad faith thing, you know, it was the rebel wisdom guy said recently, he's like, nobody ever thinks they're operating in bad faith. That's right. True. You know, so like nobody goes into a conversation going, I'm going to operate in bad faith in this conversation. So he says, well, so what does it actually mean when we say that? I think operating in bad faith is actually when you assume the other person is operating in bad faith. Because part of like, so there's, there's a certain dynamic, like you're talking about that trust. You can think of it as like there's a, in, in the trust game, like I'm extending beyond myself to, to meet you 
and you're doing the same. And at any given moment, there's a dynamic quality to that where you're pulling back or I'm pulling back. And what happens is if we both pull back too far, this, that, that overlap breaks and it, it doesn't. Right. Exist. So in some sense to, to operate in good faith is to assume the other person is operating good faith and to continue to extend that even in light of evidence that seems to indicate the contrary. Yeah. And even if they pull back, maybe. So, you know, if you think yeah. back to like the Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman debate, what made him so effective in that situation is yeah. he continues to interact with her as if she's operating in good faith while she is very clearly demonstrating the opposite. Like she yeah. seems to be purposely misunderstanding him at every single point. And like, like it's almost crazy. And it's like, he just pulls back and instead of like, he, he acts as if like, okay, no, you're like, you, you want to actually have a conversation with me. You actually want to know what I really think. Yeah. So I'm going to interact with you as if you really want to know what I really think. And so when you say something that doesn't represent what I'm going to say, I'm not going to get upset. I'm going to be like, no, that's actually what I mean is this. Right. And, and like, and, and there were so many points in that conversation where it could have gone a different way. And I think yeah. that was, what was impressive is that he's, he was able to, um, to do that and, and well and don't you think don't you think that this is an intuitive thing you feel it i can feel in a conversation when i'm having a good faith conversation when i'm not i can actually somewhat if i'm aware enough within a conversation realize when i'm slipping into bad faith and it's also hard to assume yeah. the other person's operating in bad faith when they are treating you as if you're operating in good faith if they continue yeah. to do it, even if you're like, you know, butting heads and they continue to assume that, you know, you're on the straight and narrow with them and like that you intend well and that you're, you're doing your best, you know. Isn't, isn't, isn't it just listening to someone as if they have someone to teach you, something to teach you? Like, isn't that in good faith? I think that so. I think so. But I, but I think the problem is, is that we take that, we take that axiom, we take that platitude and then every, like, this is the, this is what I call giving the Sunday school answer. Like anyone in this Paul Vanderclay, like little corner of the internet knows that rule, or most of us know that rule. And we would say like, yes, that is the way we should be in the world. But again, do we act as if, do you actually enact that in it's a conversation? Hard. It is hard. It is very hard. And we're all so full of, um, you know, pride that we, but that I, we I have think it, these things it's figured hard out. because we, we believe in winners and losers and we want to be the winner. And we don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't see the ways in which that is actually um, subverting what we really want. Well, so, right. And I don't, I mean, this isn't, this is just to use an illustration and an anecdote. This isn't to like praise myself, but, but I mean, part of this, I think I've just learned through my own experience. So I've been dialoguing with, Sam, our good friend, Unitarian Sam, like through Voxer, um, because he has this debate coming up with Chris Day, the annihilationist guy. He's going to be on Preston's podcast, and they're going to have a debate about biblical Unitarianism and the Trinity. And so I've just been sending, so I just told Sam, you know, send me your thoughts as you're processing through this. If you want to, if you just want to process out loud, I'd love to listen to it and give you my thoughts. And, and Sam he essentially, like he's, he said repeatedly two or three times over the course of us doing this, just how thankful and appreciative he is to be able to process through these things with someone who is 
who, who basically is exercising Jordan Peterson's rule. Right. Like I'm not, am I Trinitarian? Yes. And, and I'm basically, and where Sam and I are a little different is I'm basically Trinitarian because philosophically it makes the most sense to me. And also because I just accept, this is where I've changed from me Protestant. I just accept the tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so about proving it biblically. I actually don't think you can proof text the Trinity biblically. Like, I mean, and Sam and I talk about this stuff a lot, but it's just Sam and I have conversations with people. This is why Preston has told me this. This is why Preston likes to dialogue with me because he can say stuff, even though his podcast is Theology in the Raw, to me that he doesn't normally say to people. And we really try to have a pretty honest conversation about things and say what we really say and think. It's so, it's pretty exceedingly rare. And, and it's a feel thing. Like, it's just, I can, when I, when you get combative, this, this is the way I always gauge it, I guess, is it's more like, it's more the fruit of the spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. So all those lists in scripture, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control versus like anger, bitterness, resentment, backbiting, malice. In a conversation, if I start feeling these, like if I'm, if I'm bearing the fruit of the spirit in a conversation and I'm feeling love and it's flowing and it's good, I'm not even aware of it usually. But like if I'm having a conversation where, where like I'm starting to get angry, I'm starting to get combative and I'm wanting to score points and win points, you're, 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 we're doing that thing where you're pulling back from, you know, it, it's tree of life, spirit of nature versus spirit of grace. You're pulling back into that nature, like winners and losers, and and you're wrong. And it's a contest. It's a manipulated thing. It's a competition. Yeah. And um, and I don't know. I mean, you you can only be you can only have somewhat or a more a more accurate um, judgment of that when it's a self critique versus critiquing the others, and that's where we should always be concerned, I suppose. Um, it's hard to critique other people fairly unless of course they've asked you to and it's concerning their work or people are so right? different oh my gosh you know but you know like this whole idea of winners and losers yin and yang um uh heaven and hell you know um right and left you know we have we, we, we're constantly we've got you know two parties democratic systems that are just two party systems basically right and um it just this this pattern just keeps repeating itself over and over and there's always there's always there's one side and then there's the other side right and it and it's what you're talking about in 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 your good faith arguments is 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 bringing those two things together in in, in the middle in into a middle way right into a place where and i don't even want to use any kind of terms to describe it because then it just becomes political um, but it's in the middle. It's a it's a thing that's right, you know, in the in the middle and and walking down the middle. And to me, this is what Scripture is constantly calling us to do: is 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 to say, no, it's not that, and it and no, it's not that either. It's not the left, and it's not the right. It's not the winner, and it's not the loser. You know, whenever they ask Jesus about who's going to be first, he puts mm. them at the bottom. You know, so. <laughs> well, I, 
I think it's too, the, the thing is, we're also called to, um, to say and hold on to what we believe, to be honest with what, how we actually see things. Cause you, 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 all of us, you know, we're, we're on the same page with this to some extent, but we all still have this kind of unique perspective. And I think that's a, that's a part of this too, is that you, we can recognize that um, there's something each of us can contribute just by being honest. And sometimes, I mean, for some, that's easier for some people than others. Cause we, you know, some people have a more of a, a personality where they want to bend what they, they say to fit other people cause they want to avoid conflict, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's something I struggle with a lot of times where I like, I don't want to really say things the actual way I see them because I'm worried that it's going to stir up some sort of problem or like, it's going to be, be a conflict that I have to deal with. But um, I think there is something in, there's something in that that relationship to the truth and 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 bringing it into articulation that we all can benefit from if we assume the other person is operating in good faith and yeah and, and kind of extending that um that hope and that trust to somebody even when it seems like uh like I think this guy's actually just trying to score points do you yeah, think for me too it's it's always been like well i if, if I have really strong convictions about something and I want to say it um, to somebody or, or I'm asked, mostly I, I do if I'm asked. I always tell the truth, actually, if I'm asked. But um, it's like, I don't have anything to lose, okay? If I don't tell the truth, if I don't tell them what I think when they ask, then I have everything to lose because I'm not being honest with myself. Like that's got to be the worst possible scenario, right? You're lying to yourself. What are you doing? You're trying to make somebody happy. What's the yeah, point? I, I think lying to yourself, you're lying to God. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, um, but then the other, the other key to that is because, you know, some people can use truth to be hurtful, right? They can say things that are hurtful. Well, it's the truth, you know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> And that's not, that's not great. The Truth other, doesn't care about your feelings, Sherry. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, to, is, to, is if you know that the person that you're talking to is a child of God, okay? If you look at them and you, and you see them as, as a thing that God made with his hands, that if you think about all the verses in the scripture that say, I knew you when you were yet in the womb, Right? I, I know you, I, I see you, I, and you look at the, and you don't think about yourself in, in those verses. You're not like, oh, God knows, you know, but you're looking at the other person and you're saying, that's who they are. They're his, mm. right? He loves them. How can you not have a good faith conversation with them, right? They're his children. And, and, and. And, and, and there's you, something that you're going to be united to eventually as well. Right. Right. And this is why, so this is why I probably push so much for like my whole, you know, egoic elect, intellect, and more of like the feminine communication spirituality is that, and this is what you were saying, what we were saying earlier is that people don't really believe in this version of hell because they don't act that way. I would also say kind of on the flip side of their coin that, that outside of our egoic intellect that wants to win that wants to have winners and losers, that wants to judge. Um, I, I think we all have 
we all have a way of seeing and I think we all know this intuitively like we all know this in our heart I would say I would say like in our true heart you know because we are icons of God and we maybe have covered that up with a bunch of filth and tarnish and sickness but truly in there somewhat when you're looking at another person it's like looking at the face of a little kid this is why people love little kids you you just see instantly that this is that it's an icon of God I mean, you, you see through to that depth that it's a beautiful child of God. And if we could get, I, I think we need to exercise our noose to get to that place more and more so. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, it was on some late night talk show during the last presidential election, you know, when it gets so heated and everybody's just like, either like, yay, Trump, make America great again, or yay, Hillary, you know, first woman president, and she's not Trump. Um, but it was, it was just so heated and so combative. I think one of the late night talk show hosts somehow found pictures of both of them when they were like two or something and like put them up on the screen side by side of like little Hillary and, you know, little Trump and, and everyone just, I, what I think we forget and you get older and you start like, this is what happens. Like the egoic intellect takes over and we, and we forget everything is a model and we start thinking our model is the reality and we forget that child is still there. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that you saw in that child is still there. Yeah. That's what the icon of God is. And if, and, and, and I think if we all saw the world that way, every conversation would be a good face conversation. Like this is, so, Michael, when you were talking to Karen, I don't know, you, I commented on all this stuff. I was just commenting as I listened through to it. So there's just like a stream of consciousness comment commentary for me. But you were describing the experience of sometimes when you're just staring at someone you know, and it isn't in a conversation, like say your dad or something, and all of a sudden something happens where like all your models just go away and it's like you see them in a way you've never seen them before. It's just like you see them new newly mm-hmm. and you were describing that and instantly when you were saying it I, I have that same experience I know exactly what you're talking about and to me that's what like that is the experience of what I like vision is like when you see everything you see you actually stop you see them as an icon you stop seeing all all the outside appearances yeah. and you see through it and that is the kind of that is the kind of vision that I am essentially trying to purport that I'm trying to purport or say that like, that's how we should view the world and every conversation rather than the egoic intellect. Like those are the two conflicting things, I think. Um, And then you do, and then you do, you do, I mean, then you follow Christ. Like you go in grace, you keep going in further unto death. Well, see, that's what Jesus did, right? He had nothing to do. Yes. He loved everyone. Yes. (laughs) He saw them as children of God. That's exactly what his life was. And he Uh, acted as if he didn't just say it. Right. Paul says, you know, you can kill my body, but you can't kill my soul, you know? <laughs> so, well, I mean, Paul said, this is, I was going to say this earlier when you were talking about winners and losers, Paul says in Romans nine is where it is, is that I wish I was accursed. 
I wish I was damned by God for the sake of my brethren. Yeah, you're willing. You're that like, I mean, he just... That's I mean, what Joseph McDonald calls loving for the sake of loving. That's when the child sitting in the father's lap turns the father's face to the other children to kiss. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I love that, right? It's so beautiful. And that's exactly... <laughs> yeah. I have this ongoing battle with my son who, who is like, it's because we both love to argue, right? <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's all good. It's like really good, actually. But we differ on some, you know, political levels. So that, that's been a bit of a challenge for me. And, and I've had to say at some point, okay, you know what? Let's schedule a conversation for tonight. We're going to have this conversation tonight after dinner until it's over i'm going to listen to you you're going to listen to me and then we're going to go up go to bed and then we're going to get up in the morning and we're not having this conversation ever again okay because you're only here for another two and a half weeks and i don't want to do this the whole time you're here so let's just do it let's get it done and then we'll go then we'll go have some fun <laughs> you know and, and, and then he gets to listen to my point of view and I, I listened to his and, um, and it was, you know, it was great because I had to listen. I didn't want to hear what he had to say. Honestly, I didn't, it was like blah, blah, blah. Right. But I listened and the same for him. He listened to me and he didn't want to hear anything I had to say, <laughs> but we gave each other the floor. And then, and then I I often say to people, you know, in, in places where you're not going to agree, well, then we'll, we just agree to disagree, and that's, it's okay. And you know what I find? Some people can't handle that. They don't want to go there. They don't want to say, oh, let's agree to disagree. No, no, you have to be on my team, right? It's, it's the winners and losers thing again. Well, don't it's you, like, well, I'm and, going to. And don't you think to some extent, like, kind of what I was, even in that situation, if we have a good faith kind of iconic vision of the other one, like say with your son, that, or you could think of it just broadly politically, like uh, pick an issue, like I'll pick a really extreme one, like abortion. I think you can, I mean, this is maybe too extreme for people to get my point, but. That's pretty extreme. But I think you have to get to the point. You really have to, unless you fundamentally believe the world is, is winners and losers and good people and bad people, which if you're at all familiar with Solzhenitsyn and this conversation and totalitarianism, you should know that's a bad idea. But, but you have to come to the place where you say like, even with your son, what we, we both want the good for people. We both want the good for each other. People on both sides of an issue, immigration, both want, like, it's not like people who are against immigration you I mean there's probably some there's extremes on in every side but are just like hate immigrants Mm -hmm. no they love people and so for somehow fundamentally yeah somehow they they love people and I think the best way to love people is to have this issue and so like even with your son I think if you can if you can come into the conversation like okay yes all models are false all ideas all propositions never reach into that transcendent infinite category that jordan peterson's talking about where the finite doesn't exist that infinite thing that's transcendent of time 
propositions right. can't ever get there. And so, so forget your propositions, forget your identities. Like, what are you saying? Can I see through iconically to your heart that wants the good? Yeah. And yeah. what is that? And how can I, and how can I attach that some way and like get through just like the superficial labels, right. like the thing that's underneath those? <clears throat> Yeah, which well, is I a think, hard thing to do. Yeah, and I think I think some of the thing is is we 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 neglect to understand that the power of language, and and how we're always in some sense always always speaking prophetically, because you know in the the propositional frame of mind again it's it's always about this kind of this eternal now it's like this weird dead thing that's like we try and freeze frame it where. But that's not really the way language works because language has all this life in it that goes in all these different directions. And whenever, especially when we're interacting with another person, we are prophesying to the other person. We're calling parts of that person into being or out of them, you know, and we, we can kind of choose which parts of that person to, to speak to, you know, we can, we can speak to the parts of them that are, um, you know, struggling and aren't maybe act, you know, acting in, in good faith, or we can prophesy to the dead bones that aren't even alive of, of, you know, their good faith and say, no, you're going to, you're going to interact with me. And, mm. and, and kind of, and I know that's like, that sounds kind of wishy-washy, but I think it's really true. Like we, we forget how much power we have in a situation to, because it, it's weird, like anytime you're having a conversation with anybody, like there's this weird thing that's going on where you're you're trying to assert your own identity, but you're also being shaped by how the other person's expectations of your identity are, are being relayed back to you. So you're kind of mm. like, there's that negotiation that's happening all the time. And you, you know, if you assume and, and react to and call to the best in that other person, they will actually change shape right. in the course right. of, of that conversation. And you'll... Yeah you'll, you can say, well, it's all in my head, but it's, 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 it's a weird thing. Cause in some sense it does, it is all in your head, but it's also, it manifests itself in reality. So it's, it's this yeah. weird, you know, it's like what you like, I think it was Peugeot said something like, you know, who, what is a saint is saint is somebody that sees God everywhere, you know, and, and, and right. how do they do that? Well, it's kind of like this muscle that they, they get better and better at using and you know, like, how do I, you know, how do I see God in this, this situation, in that situation, in this, this thing, and that's, and I think that's, um, that's, that's kind of what you were saying in terms of seeing iconically something of what that is, 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 is understanding the sacredness of all of reality. Absolutely. You see, you see infinity in all the finite. And, and that's a big part of what, um, David Bentley Hart's ideas. He he yeah. says he he gets to this idea of universalism from the from the idea of creation ex nihilo, which means that all of creation has to be um, associated with God. It's it's it, it's all sacred, right? It can, you you can't. It's not like we don't believe that God like stumbled across some like lump of possibility you know, in, in eternity and, and that somehow constrained or that, that he, he kind of worked with it the best he could do, but really it's like this dirty, nasty thing. And that was the best yeah. he could do. 
right? Yeah. No, he, he, every, every last particular detail of the, of the reality that came into being was of his choosing and design is, yeah. is, what, is what the Christian belief is. And so you have, and, and by, by definition, then it all, all has to be sacred. And so That's, it all has to have things that link back to him and through which any detail, whether it's like some, you know, quirky scientific fact, it all has links back into who God is. Yeah, yeah that's, why, that's why he can say that all, all, all creation um, reveals the glory of God or also all creation moans and waits. Yeah. For, right? All of it, not just us, you know, not just the, the humans. Yeah. Everything. I'm wondering, you know, uh, I, Everything. How, how other people, obviously we're all fairly convinced in some degree. I, I'm, I'm kind of still in a middle space where like I feel convinced, but I also want to remain open-minded. But I'm curious, you know, <laughs> what I would like to hear a, a uh, An argument. somebody like Paul or something like that really go like, okay, I'm going to really take this on and, and try yeah. and give this some intellectual firepower from the other side. And I'm, I'm curious what that would look like, you know, and, um, I don't know. I'd, I'd I'd like to hear it because I feel like I I, I don't know, I understand this position. But wouldn't it have to be on the same like to make it fair? It would have to be a, a philosophical argument, like Luke was talking about. Like this 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 book is a it's a it's a philosophical argument for universalism in sense, right? It's 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 bringing all these things together and making them um, stick. A good bit of its philosophy, but some of it's you know just scriptural, um, but. Yeah, I would. Yeah, but you could feel, oh gosh, you know, that's like opening a can of worms if you want to talk about the scriptures because. If, yeah, it's true. You know. Well, because well, you're always you're always coming at you're always there. I mean, this is the postmodern critique, right? Is is that people don't acknowledge consciousness in that, and so there's always an interpreter. Like there isn't just there aren't just like objective facts and like these objective reasoners here. There's always a conscious interpreter of these facts that is laying things out in a story, which gets into the whole systematizing thing, which is like, and I can hear, I mean, like I can hear the textual pushbacks from an annihilationist view, you know, because I know those really well, but, but then it all depends upon your story of feeding into that. So you almost, if you were going to talk to somebody about pushbacks from universalism, I mean, you'd almost have to like cage how you wanted that because I know how the textual conversation will go more or less, I think. Um, and then I think like if, if I just had to guess, like someone like Paul would say when it comes to, um, I, I think, I think a lot of this really hinges on, um, so, what, what you were saying earlier, ha, ha, panentheism and even some form of deism, because because if you really see all of creation as this creation ex nihilo, where God is really intrinsic, has to be intimately connected and in and speaking everything into existence all the time. We don't believe God just spoke and then this thing had its own self-sustaining existence apart from his continual speaking. Yeah, yeah. That's not correct christian doctrine and so he's everything i mean this is why i love the book notes from the tilt world like that's what that's one of the main points of the whole book is like all of this is is words yeah 
this is words. Yeah. Like everything is words. This is hard, but it's, it feels hard. It's hard words. You know, everything is fundamentally words, but they're the words of God that are happening all the time. He's in him. We live and move and have our being. And, um, and I, and I think if you lose that, you, if you fall into a, you fall into deism and dualities and that's where I think the winners and losers, the heaven and the hell, you, you fundamentally miss, miss the, and this is why I've always thought this conversation really comes down to fundamental assumptions about monism and dualism. And I think Christian monism is is the true answer like ultimately that everything is rooted and founded in God and God is all in all. Like, I don't think there's something, I mean, I think there are distinctions between God and creation, but this is, this is why I'm a panentheist. Like it's an energy essence distinction. That's, that's the frame that I have for it because otherwise you have, you have some kind of separate you, otherwise you're a deist. I just don't see any other way around it. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of a lot of modern Western Christianity is is fundamentally deist in its assumptions about you know this kind of icky world that right. is, is so far away from God and and is you know Jesus is the life raft that you know we escape from all of this being burned up in the end, um, and it's kind of a good riddance kind of thing. Right. And I think on that frame, this is to my point, what I think someone like Paul would say is that if there is this icky bad stuff, if there is evil, if, if evil has some kind of like ontological existence, which I don't think it does, I don't think it can, because again, back to the whole point of God, like it just has to be in my mind, like an absence, like darkness is to light. Um, you know, like even in Isaiah, I could proof text that. Like, I am God. I am He who creates chaos. Like the word for evil in the Bible in the Old Testament, it's like I God create this. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that, proof texter? You know, like I don't think you can. <laughs> so, I think in this deistic, dualistic mindset, you have to say there's evil. God has to wipe out evil, or else He's not good. But then, like, this is why David Bentley Hart says, like, these aren't philosophically cogent. They don't work. There's inconsistencies. Then what is evil? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't, yeah. you can't deal with all these pieces. You have a, but I don't know. That's what I think he would say, but I don't think it's consistent. Yeah. He does I'd talk like about it. He does on. talk about the finitude of evil in this book. Okay. Do you remember, um, Mr. Reading it four times? <laughs> the finitude, well yeah uh, what, what specifically about the finitude of evil well he i just like to see his talk about how um evil has to come to an end like yeah. it's not eternal well it, and the idea basically that um you know to know the good is to to will it right so that that, that in some sense any sort of um um, you know, what we consider freedom of, of will is towards the good, you know, and, and, and any sort of pulling away from it is a, as a slavery of some kind, you know? Um, and that to me makes a whole lot of sense. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine a creature with perfect, um, you know, understanding of, of both heaven and hell that rationally chooses hell. Right, that doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't see an well, argument. Like you said, you, you choose what's good for you, right? Even if it might not be good for someone else, ultimately you're choosing the good. I, I'm, am I understanding that correctly? But, but, but it, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a short sightedness, right? It's still, it's still a lack of something that causes you to, because ultimately, um, you know, what, what is good for you is, is to be found in God. I mean, it's, it's, it's yes. kind of like, but you're moving there incrementally through your choices. Yeah. Well, the question is, you know, is, you know, is, is God a being among other beings or is God, the ground of all being is he goodness as such you know is is mm-hmm. is goodness something he tries to measure himself by or is it actually what he is in and of himself yeah. and and if he is then you know th- there's all this you know framing of reality that comes along with that where like you to 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 to, to willingly choose away from good is is not <laughs> there's there's nothing there's nothing rational in that other than you know we we would necessarily say that there's a there's a distorting there's a twisting involved in that decision um and what's funny is one of the some of the um examples where people were trying to argue against him was they made the comment that well in the traditions from the church that was that the angels had perfect knowledge and then they still could turn away from they could still voluntarily turn away from god i don't i don't see that you know like that you know how 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 could you think that the angels could be have a perfect knowledge i mean that 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 to me seems kind of contradictory whatever um you know perfect in that they've seen god i think but that, it's still it's still not perfect i mean the, the only person that could have a perfect knowledge of the good is god himself you know yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. any any sort of um turning away that they've done as well i feel like has to be a a miss it, it's got to be some sort of short-sightedness it has to be a um a slavery to something smaller than than what is good it's it's an, an enslavement to something other than that which ultimately satisfies um and i don't know i mean this is all very philosophical and semantic though but I'd like to hear an argument that makes sense from the other side, because I don't see how you can say, okay, well, the traditions say that the the angels had perfect knowledge and then just to extend that to being like, well, that means, you know, you could have perfect knowledge and still choose um, not to, you could still choose hell over heaven. And that yeah. could be a rational free choice that you could make knowing all the facts. So um, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know how you make that argument. But yeah. then I don't know. It's, yeah. It's, like, yeah, because he said it's like it's like choosing to do something that will make you unhappy over something yeah. that would. Be and we would we would say that person has something they're deranged somehow. They're mentally ill. Yeah. 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 I think yeah, he I, uses uses uh, some kind of example of a fire. Yeah, he talks about like you know the because he putting your hand in a fire or he, something. Right. Well, he says you know like saying that God is is you know. Um, allowing for our autonomy by allowing us to go to hell is like saying like, okay, like a person, a a father who has a mentally ill child is respecting his child's autonomy by letting that mentally ill child throw himself into a fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's by definition, both of the father to child relationship, but also of the mental derangement, 
he sees things that the mentally deranged child cannot, you know, so that autonomy is necessarily weakened and distorted. And a a good father has responsibility to, to insert himself and protect that child from its, its deranged autonomy. So, right. And the only way, the only way that even works, like, at least philosophically, the only way it makes sense to me is that if if what it means to be a being or a person is to have some kind of an agency and some kind of an autonomy that is self-existent, that is apart from God, that he is not sovereign over breathing into existence. Exactly. And, and if that happens, like, then the God, then Yahweh and the God of the Bible isn't God anymore. Yeah. And so like, you're just, that's why, that's why none of these systems work. Yeah. Except universalism. They just don't make any sense. And I, and honestly, I think my struggle, so this gets into like, and then I'm probably going to bull quick, but I'm just going to say one of my big struggles, and I say this to Preston all the time. And what is that people are very dogmatic about things that they have no idea. And, And like, this is my struggle is that like, and Paul, I think Paul would admit this. Paul hasn't read and looked into Christian universalism. He's not looked into annihilationism and that's fine. You know, we all grew up within traditions, you know, and, and we can't know all because in, information is infinite. I mean, you can't know it all, yep. but when you are exposed to other information, when you are exposed outside of your insular tribe to something and you don't, look into it you don't assume there's something you may not know and yet you stay dogmatic and entrenched you're a fool yeah yeah so um i don't know that's all thank you guys for telling me and letting me participate but i got a bolt and my computer's about to die so yeah thanks for joining but yeah i want to listen to the rest of it so love you guys bye bye So anything, any other ground you want to cover before we? Oh, well, we, we talked about a lot of stuff, not necessarily all of the book, but mostly about, in a sense, it feels like we were talking about why people have such difficulty with changing their axioms, right? Yeah. That's mostly what we were talking about. Because, because... I don't know about you, but I think so. We've been changing our axioms. <laughs> mm-hmm. in a sense, right? We're in that process. And I, what I can say about that actually is that it, you, you do have a sense of freedom when that happens. It's like, you, the, you, it's like somebody broke the chains, right? It's like you were just, you were just in this place because like, Luke was talking about this. It's your tradition or, you know, this is what you always believed or you never heard of the other thing before, like me, you know, and, um, and all of a sudden you're, you're not adhering to that. You're, you're not doing that anymore. Or, yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you feel like you've, you've had a complete transformational shift? Or you still like you're still like in a middle of space. I for myself I feel a little bit like I'm in the middle of space. Yeah, I am too. Like I'm I, I find the arguments very convincing. I still want to hear other sides of it. I think I haven't necessarily got rid of all that trepidation that again that um 
that Luke was referring to of like this sense of like, I got to get it right or else I'm going to fall into a big pit, which is going to lead me all the way down to to hell. Um, So there's, there's certainly some of that, but it's also, I want to, I want to have, uh, be able to, to have a compassion towards other people's points of view and still maintain a, a dialogue with them. Yep. And, um, I, there, there is something about, um, David Bentley Hart's book that, that is kind of, um, feels a little simplistic or kind of too neat. Right. And tight, um, for him times. even, for him even, right? Yeah. Like even for him. That's why I, I got this other book, A Larger Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm excited, there's this, there's a part two to it as well. And it goes through another history of universalism from where they leave off. Cause it's, it's, it starts at origin and it moves through time. Right. Um, and, um, and I'm excited about that because I, I want to read origin and I want to read Gregory of Nyssa before I make a final decision because David Bentley Hart is telling me about them. Yeah. Now I want to read them. And then I want to know where he, where he's constructing his, from where he's constructing his arguments. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I, I do want to go to Gregory Nyssa too. I mean, I think he has, um, quite a bit to say. And also, I mean, he's not like an obscure, like, um, peripheral figure. He's, he's, uh, no a foundational he's early father. Yeah. And, and this, um, there's just want to read you a quick, um, thing here. I think that you would like, um, origin of Alexandria circa 255. The greatest, this is this book, The Larger Hope, the greatest Christian philosopher, theologian, and exegete of the patristic era is regarded as the founder of the doctrine of universal salvation. He embedded it in his theory of apocatastasis, is that what it is? Apocatastasis, anyway, or restoration of all rational creatures to the good. However, I, as I will show, he had important antecedents such as Bardasian of Edessa and Clement of Alexandria, as well as some apocryphal writings, and especially the Bible, of which Origen was the utmost Christian exegete. He himself declares that there was a tradition behind him when he refers to apocatastasis to when he refers apocatastasis to the universal restoration. The end is the so-called, well, we're going to throw this word at me every five minutes here, apocatastasis, because then no enemy will remain. If, if it is the case that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, but the last enemy will be destroyed, death. So what I wanted to read you here was... Um, So some people have said to me that it, it's just platonic, you know, this whole idea of universal salvation, right? It's, it's a it, platonic in what sense? Like it, 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 it originates it, it, out of it, a... It rises out of Plato kind of thing. And, um, okay. and, and, and so that's how some people have been sweeping it under the rug. Yeah, yeah you know, it's just platonic. It's not Christian, it's platonic, mm-hmm. you know. But <laughs> no, so I thought I had it here. Um, but she talks about, maybe I'll just send it to you when I find it. Um, she talks about the uh, fact that it wasn't, um, 
so it, this apoctotastasis was also a philosophical term, especially in Stoic cosmology. It indicated the periodical return of the universe to its original condition in a cosmic cycle. Stoic cosmology was articulated in eons or great years that succeed one another. Each of these eons is identical or almost identical to all others with the same events, the same people and their same behaviors. The sequence of eons continues forever. Okay, now that's Stoic philosophy, right? The end of an eon is determined by a conflagration in which everything is resolved into fire, ether, aether, logos, pneuma, which, that coincides with the supreme divinity, Zeus, Jupiter, and the latter each time it initiates a new expansion into a cosmos. So that's all Stoic. And that, but Origen knew about that, but he explicitly criticized the Stoic conception of apoptosis. It destroyed human free will by maintaining that everything that has is again and again and again. Um, and by positing an infinity of the sequence of eons, it did not imply an end or telos to which all history points and which for origin is universal salvation. So anyway, I, I just wanted to, I'm just getting into that book and it's kind of interesting because so far, the only thing I've bumped up against is that it's platonic, and so I don't have to listen to it because it's not Christian. Yeah. And obviously, Origin is going to address that. <laughs> so I find that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that other people in Paul's community will read it, and I hope there's a. I hope Paul takes it up himself, and there's a. I just feel like there's there's the arguments should be should be addressed or, or like at least engaged with yes. uh, in a larger, larger uh, communal scope. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Well, um, yeah, I guess, uh, let me know if you, uh, have any other thoughts and we can, uh, we can pull this up again, but, uh, I feel like there's a lot more to say. I just don't know where to go at the moment. I feel well, like, I'm, I, yeah, I was kind of thinking that maybe, Maybe we should pull up, you know, a chunk out of one of his meditations. Yeah. Um, that would could, be good because there's a lot of complexity. And if we went through the meditations one by one, that would be interesting, I think, and useful for people. I'd like, to, I'd like to dig in a little bit more to this whole personhood thing to understand it better for myself. So, but yeah, let, let's try doing that. Um, okay. Okay. Well, we'll just keep in touch over it. Okay. Sounds like a plan. All right. Well, it's been great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the time. And uh, I'll send you this link and we can decide if we want to share it or not. Oh, you know what? Just go ahead if you want to. It's fine okay. with me. Yeah. Alrighty. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye.